Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's Brexit jaunt around Europe. The Prime Minister went off to Berlin, Paris, and is soon heading to the G7 for his debut as a world statesman. What was his Brexit message? Did he manage to change anything? And are we back to exactly where we were before? I'm delighted to be joined by our Whitehall editor, James Blitz, columnist Robert Shrimsley, and Deputy Opinion Editor, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, subscribe or leave us a rather nice review. To mark his first month as Prime Minister, Boris Johnson did his first visits with other world leaders. Before that, he penned a comprehensive four-page letter to Donald Tusk, President of the European Council, to set out why he doesn't like the Irish border backstop and some of the ideas about what could replace it. That set the tone before he went off to Berlin to receive some warm words from Angela Merkel, or that's how some saw it. And then it was off to France, where Boris Johnson kicked back his feet on the table and seemed to have a similar rapport with the French president. But after all that, has anything really changed on Brexit? James Blitz, the first Brexit thing before all that this week was Operation Yellowhammer, one of our favourite discussions, which is about the no-deal contingency planning. And we've heard lots of bits about Yellowhammer before, what it consists of, how many sheep are going to be killed, how much of a recession we're going to go into, all those sorts of things. But we saw a comprehensive leak of the Yellowhammer document, and that really put the Johnson government on the back foot because they've been trying to play down the damage of no-deal and play up their expectations. And this document really showed that it could be pretty bad. And there was a lot of debate about was this an O document, is it accurate, etc.? Yes, that's right. Over the last two years, there's been lots of talk about no deal. But we've always had only bits and pieces of information about what the government is thinking internally. And the leak that was appeared in the Sunday Times was much more comprehensive than normal. It was a pretty up-to-date document. It was presented to the first Boris Johnson cabinet. And it was basically saying that things are going to be very difficult in a lot of areas, such as, for example, as we well know, the gridlock that is expected in southern England as a result of the difficulty getting trucks across to Calais because of the imposition of checks that would be done by the French. Michael Gove, who is now fully in charge of no-deal planning, pushed back pretty hard on this document, said it was to some degree out of date because lots of things are being done by government right now and have been done over the last three weeks. And he has a point. There is a great deal more activity on no deal in at the centre of Whitehall under Mr Gove than was the case beforehand. I mean, there's a real sense of energy. But even so, I think at the end of the week, most people in business on the outside looking at the possibility of no deal on October the 31st think that things are pretty dire and that however much the government may be making efforts on all sorts of things at the moment, it really is too little too late. They're trying to do in the period of about two months 
what should have been on over two years. Because Miranda Green, we're talking about all this because Mr Johnson has said we're going to leave come what may on October the 31st and nearly everybody thinks it's probably going to be with no deal. There's no realistic break that will come on to what happened this week in a moment. But when you read this document, this spin from number 10 came that this was an O document, which as James says is probably not entirely true. They also said it was politically motivated. They claimed that it was either Philip Hammond or someone around him who leaked this document to the Sunday Times to try and discredit their preparations for a no-deal Brexit. But in terms of the public mood, it hasn't really seemed to have shifted anything. There was more polling out this week that saw people want Brexit done as their top priority above anything else. They don't want to remain coalition. They don't want a Jeremy Corbyn government. They just want Brexit done. And even if it includes all of the dire things in Yellowhammer, people still seem to sort of say, well, OK, fine. I agree with that. And I think what we're seeing is a sort of triumph of the tactics that have been used over the last year or so, which is to divert any conversation about the substance and the risks onto a conversation about process. Who cares who leaked this Project Yellowhammer document? Who cares whether it was penned, as we think, on August the 1st or two weeks after that? It lays out in very stark terms what might happen to the country in the event of a no-deal Brexit. But they've shifted the conversation onto things that are neither here nor there. I think another thing that was really interesting on this same theme is that we also had a joint report from all of the medical royal colleges on the consequences for the NHS and people's real needs for medication in the event of no deal. And that also was extremely worrying. It caused barely a ripple because of the success of this strategy of branding any conversation about the consequences of no deal Project Fear Mark II after the disastrous attempt by George Osborne in the Remain campaign in the 2016 referendum to say that we would have an immediate economic catastrophe if we voted to leave. So what you find, and I found that this week, discussing Yellowhammer, etc., in various broadcasting scenarios, is that the conversation comes back to, you've already told us there would be a catastrophe, there wasn't one, we simply don't believe you anymore. So it's impossible for anyone who wants to manoeuvre away from no deal to sort of gain traction. Robert Shimsley? This reminds me slightly of a conversation I had years ago during the BP Deepwater Horizon crisis where someone was saying, yes, this has been a PR disaster for BP. And the counterpart, no, no, it's an actual disaster for BP. And I think what's happening at the moment in the discussions around no deal planning reminds me of that because, yes, the Johnson team have been quite clever and quite effective and the levers have been quite clever and quite effective in, in deflecting attention from the issue onto what's happened and how. But we've only got 70 days to find out. And so all these tactics, while they work quite well now, and there's no doubt they have been successful in distracting attention, the clock is ticking on them. And if they are to be taken at face value that we're leaving on October 31st, deal or no deal, then we're shortly going to find out just how Project Fear this really is. So let's go back, James, to this efforts to get a deal. So that came out on Sunday. Then on Monday, we had the letter from Boris Johnson to Donald Tusk. Now, ever since he became Prime Minister, the mantra from the government and from Number 10 has been that the backstop is anti-democratic because their argument is that there's no unilateral exit mechanism and if the UK Parliament wanted to exit, it couldn't do so. Now, in this letter to Donald Tusk, it was in much more detail than we've seen before from Boris explaining why he doesn't like the backstop. And his arguments were essentially that it breaks the Good Friday Agreement, something that is highly disputed by the EU, but they said because it would not give the people of Northern Ireland an ability to have a say over their future. But crucially, the most important part of the letter I 
saw was number 10 saying that this would not allow Boris to pursue his vision for the future of the UK because under Mrs May's plan, it was all about alignment with EU rules and the rule book and a customs union and all that sort of thing. What Boris is saying is, in fact, we want to go in an entirely different direction. And people I've spoken to in Brussels said that really showed us that the idea of having a close economic trading partnership is not going to happen with the Johnson government. And that upends all of Brussels' expectations for future UK-EU trading links. Yeah, I think that broadly sums up what the letter was. I mean, as you say, it was a very long letter, but substantively, I don't think its content came as any great surprise. The fact is that Boris Johnson in the leadership contest and in the period afterwards was taking an extremely hard-line view of what he wanted. He wants the backstop fully removed, absolutely ripped out from the withdrawal agreement. And that is basically what the letter said. And the problem with that position is that it is one which Emmanuel Macron, Chancellor Merkel and the other European leaders, and of course the Irish, are simply not prepared to play ball with. Now, what happened in the course of the week was that he then went to see Chancellor Merkel, he then went to see Emmanuel Macron, and they were quite careful in the way they received him and approached the letter and his position. They were basically saying, look, there's a period of around 30 days, we're prepared to listen to what new ideas you might come up with to try and in some way replicate the backstop and alter the position that you have. But they were very clear that they were pushing the ball back into his court. As far as they were concerned, the most important thing from the French and the German position is not to lose the blame game, which they think is about to happen as we approach no deal. In other words, what they were saying was, we are really prepared to try and come up with some kind of agreement, some kind of deal, we do want a deal. And so they were very welcoming, if you like, and very much listening to Johnson. But at the end of the week, we're still nowhere near any kind of solution to this problem. We're still very much looking at no deal as a very likely outcome. And so what's going to happen in the next 30 days that's going to change that? And the reason a lot of this, Miranda, is the fact that there seemed to be a proper alternative to the backstop because in his letter to the European Council head, Mr Johnson was talking about alternative arrangements for the Irish border. And this is a reference to various ideas that have been floating around parts of Westminster for years now, in fact, about technology and trusted trade schemes and all sorts of things to try and get around this issue of not having a hard border on the island of Ireland. But these ideas are not new. They've been discussed a lot before and every time they've come up, that you've said, yes, well, that's something interesting to aim to in the future, but that isn't the reassurance we need now. So even if alternative arrangements were going to get there, it doesn't seem likely in any way that you are going to say, OK, we'll get rid of the backstop and we're going to trust you. And that was another key part of the letter for me, that Boris was asking for a level of trust from the EU that there would never be a hard border. And that's simply not how the bloc operates. It's something that's based on legal certainty. Well, that's right. It's based on international law when you're no longer part of a trading bloc. But it's interesting from this point of view as well. It's a kind of subplot of the blame game that James was talking about because you've also got members of the UK government saying well, we have no intention of erecting a hard border in Ireland. Are you the EU saying you're going to erect a hard border? So even if you get a worst case scenario there, they still seem more concerned about setting up who's to blame than seeking for solutions. In terms of seeking for solutions, it's extremely hard to see what could convince the Europeans at this stage. And really, that press conference where Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel stood there both with quite difficult to read expressions on their faces. And Angela Merkel said, by all means, we've got 30 days 
to come up with something, but the onus is on the UK. That's the point. The onus is still on the UK and it's not obvious at all where these ideas are going to come from. And of course, everyone's then spent the next four days trying to interpret whether Angela Merkel was just being extremely polite or whether her different diplomatic approach from Macron, who said in terms that he was happy to be the kind of hard man of the EU negotiation, the bad cop to her good cop, or was it a kind of tiny chink of light in the possibility for a new dialogue on Ireland? With the letter, Robert, and the talk of alternative arrangements, do you think this was a serious attempt by Number 10 to get somewhere or just, as Miranda said, part of setting the groundwork for a blame game? Well, I don't think those two are necessarily incompatible. I think it can be both. But I do think it's important to try and look at this from the point of view of Team Johnson and from the Leave campaign. Their worldview in these negotiations has been that because Britain under Theresa May always looked like it would blink, always caved, always looked scared of a no deal, Europe was emboldened to take positions and take strong and hardline positions that it might not have taken when faced with somebody who makes it clear that that was not possible. And were we back at the very beginning of the negotiations, that argument might have some merit. The problem is time. But I do think their fundamental view is that it's not that alternative arrangements don't work. It's that the EU was not prepared to countenance them because it didn't think it needed to. And therefore, what Boris Johnson is saying is you do need to countenance these things because this backstop is not happening. It will not get through Parliament. And he's right on that point. I, I, I happen to think He's right as well. I think there is some merit to this argument, which is the backstop could bring about the very thing it is entirely designed to prevent, which is a hard border on the island of Ireland. And the more he says this, the more it slowly starts to percolate through. Does that mean that Ireland and the EU are going to fold? Well, no, not necessarily. But I think he thinks it's a strong and persuasive argument and he's going to keep fighting it. Absolutely. Now, we come to Germany, Miranda, as you were saying, that Boris then went off to go and see Angela Merkel. And the way that this has been interpreted has caused so much of a row this week, because a lot of the British press have said that this is a chink of light, as you put it. This is Merkel saying, you know what, this means we can get this thing done. We're going to get a deal in 30 days and we're all going to be happy. What in reality, it seemed to be, was more again setting a very obvious trap for Boris, which is to say, OK, we've given you 30 days, come up with a solution, which he probably can't, because as you've just said, Robert, the alternative arrangements thing probably isn't going to meet what the EU wants. So when there isn't a solution, whose fault is it? It's Mr Johnson's because we gave you the opportunity and you can't do this. But a lot of other papers, particularly the Brexit supporters, the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph said this is a great victory for Britain and watching the row is like the whole three years of the Brexit debate compressed into one week. Yes, I agree. I felt as if it was a crystallisation of the problems that both sides, the UK and the EU, have had in interpreting each other and trying to work out where the other side is coming from since the Brexit vote. In that, you can't help thinking that a lot of the assumptions on the European side, not least encouraged by people in British politics, has been that Britain won't really leave. And from our point of view, once again, we saw this week this sort of obsessive idea with trying to interpret the EU as being about to give some major concession that's probably not coming. And I think that was the problem with the Merkel press conference. It wasn't so much that the British press said there might be a chink of light. That's what I'm hoping there is. The British press said Europe's going to cave. And actually, over the last two days, that theme has got even more dramatic. And it's potentially, as you say, setting 
Boris Johnson up for failure unless they've won this blame game. It was quite extraordinary to read some of the Brexit supporting press immediately after these two meetings. One of them talked about Boris returning in triumph. And you know, what is triumph? The fact that he didn't fall over. What exactly is this diplomatic triumph? But then again, if you take this from the perspective of the Leavers, what they believe they have looked at for the last two or three years is the EU humiliating Britain, humiliating Theresa May, which at times it certainly did, did not go out of its way to help her in any way. And Boris Johnson has gone out there and said, no, look, this is my bottom line and I will not move on it. So it is a strategy that these people believe in and they think maybe it will work, maybe it won't. But fundamentally, this is also about restoring some British pride and we are not going to go and be bullied. My sense, James, is that in fact, number 10 are quite happy. They get the both sides of it and it's been overplayed. Officials were trying to play down the words that came from Merkel. They were not trying to big this up, being fully aware of the realities. But from their perspective, both with the meeting in Berlin and the subsequent meeting in Paris, they've left the door open to discussions because up until now from Mr Tusk and Michel Barney, it's always been no talks on the withdrawal agreement. We are not budging. We can talk about the non-binding political declaration, but we are not reopening the Brexit deal. From Number 10's perspective, they end the week by saying, well, actually, in fact, both leaders have said we're willing to talk. Let's see what we can do, which is seen as something a bit more positive than where we were maybe this time last week. I think from number 10's perspective, there are a few gains from these meetings of the week. One of them, for example, is that when Parliament comes back on September the 3rd, there's a lot of talk about how MPs are going to somehow try and foul up what Boris Johnson is trying to do, either through votes in Parliament and so on. If you've got a situation now where Merkel is talking about some kind of process, then that suddenly makes that kind of resistance by MPs a bit more difficult. It pushes particularly back. Particularly Conservative MPs. Particularly Conservative MPs. It makes it much more difficult for the Conservative rebels to act as quickly as they might have wanted to. So that is good news. That said, I go back to the original point, Merkel and Macron have fundamentally given nothing, and my assumption is they're going to give nothing. There is no suggestion, it seems to me, in Paris and Berlin that there is some kind of modification of what was in the withdrawal agreement unless Johnson wants to go down the road of trying to change the political declaration, which is what I originally thought he was going to try and do, to do the so-called lipstick on a pig act of simply making that kind of modification and then get the thing through in the end. Because in the end, the hardliners in the Tory party can't really face him down in the way they faced May down. I don't think, therefore, that they are going to get very far. So in the end, come late September, early October, we're going to have a full-blown crisis. James is quite right about how difficult this makes it for the Conservative potential Remainy or soft Brexity rebels. And in fact, I think it's very significant in the last couple of days, you've seen characters like Caroline Spellman, who at one point was a kind of ringleader of the Midlands MPs manoeuvring for a softer Brexit. She has said there's no way that she would be part of a no-confidence motion, for example. I think that as we get closer to September, the pressure on those Tory MPs to have nothing to do with an attempt to bring down Boris Johnson will get much, much tougher. Just in terms of where this leaves us when we get to the autumn, you know, all this talk about a potential general election after Brexit is achieved on October the 31st. To get back to Robert's original point when we started talking of how ever much you win the prior communications battle over the threats to no deal. Once you're actually into it, you're running serious political risks. And there's been increasing talk this week of potentially having a general election that coincides with the act of Brexit. So you're not yet faced with the burning carcasses 
the lorry parks, etc., but where you have successfully silenced those critics on the Conservative benches. Well, can I just put forward a scenario that a EU diplomat suggested might happen to me and everything I've heard suggests they think that no deal is the default and it will take some big swerving by the UK to stop that. But if we have no deal Brexit, there's been all this talk about unilateral standstill deals and that will be entirely up to the EU on what is in their economic and political interest. But let's say, Miranda, we do have that election quite soon after. Now, I think in number 10, they don't want that. They don't want an election until Brexit is delivered, but it may well not be in their power. And I think the talk of a confidence vote in September, that's probably subsided. But I think in October, things probably will come to a head. And I think the Lib Dems are in a position that when it absolutely comes to it, they probably may end up supporting Jeremy Corbyn to try and put him in Downing Street. Because if they don't try and do everything possible to stop no deal, that's a very difficult election position. But all that fails. We have an election. We have a no deal Brexit. Let's say Boris gets a slim majority out of that by pulling away some Labour seats in the north and all the rest of it. Then at that point, the backstop doesn't matter because the DUP will have gone and Boris could easily accept the Northern Ireland backstop. So we have a no deal Brexit. And then bit by bit, he accepts what is the withdrawal agreement. By, say, February, we end up not entirely from where we would have been now. That's the irony of the idea of a no deal Brexit. No deal has become in the public mind something that sounds attractively simple because it might make all this stop. Of course, it's the absolute opposite. You're then trapped in a situation where you've got to negotiate multiple emergency deals from a position of almost no leverage at all. So I think actually things would become very, very complicated for the government quite quickly. I very much agree with you. I find all this talk about elections, either before or immediately after October the 31st, just impossible to get my head around. A no-deal Brexit on October the 31st could well be, I mean, the word catastrophe is overused, but it is a major challenge by any standards. And the key point, which I think you were referring to in what you were saying a moment ago, Seb, is that the British government ultimately does not have the levers to control how no deal will happen. All the levers are in the hands of other players. The French will decide the patrolling of HGVs across into Calais. It is the European Union who will decide whether they roll over existing arrangements for truck drivers and food and tariffs and all the rest of it. It is financial markets who will decide how far to push down the pound. Above all, it is the public who will decide, and they don't know how this will go, the government, whether to panic and everybody fill up the car with petrol or not. And so in those circumstances, I do not understand how you can rationally be sitting in number 10 and saying, let's have an election campaign in the run-up to this unknowable event, or let's have one after. It seems to me ridiculous. And finally, this brings me to the last question I want to put to all of you, which is something, again, that's been discussed a lot in Westminster this week. There's a lot of people in Number 10 and in the Cabinet who would be happy to do no deal. But some people still wonder whether Boris Johnson himself would go through with this. There's clearly people around him who would be willing. But when it comes to that absolute crunch, when you're faced with the kind of scenarios James is talking about, if there's a prospect of some kind of deal, could you see any last minute swerving or do you think he would go through with it? Miranda? I think that they will go through with it. As we've said, maybe there's a tiny sliver of opportunity to do something differently. Some of the hardline stuff that's coming out of the Cabinet, particularly, I must say, on EU citizens in the UK being immediately cast into sort of third-party country citizen status on the first day of November, 
this is really tough stuff and I don't think it's a bluff. Robert? Um, I would just say, before I directly answer your question, one of the things that worries me about all of the discussions in this is all of the focus in no-deal discussions on the immediate impact and the immediate chaos. And the thing is, we know that however well-prepared, there will be some chaos, there will be some problems. It's a scale issue and we don't know. But whatever they are, they will eventually be settled. The real long-term damage of no-deal is what comes afterwards for the years and years to come. I think that in the end, Boris Johnson would have to go through with it because I think he's marched himself and everybody up a particular hill. But what will be at the back of his head is the point, which I think touches on what James was saying a few minutes ago, that if there is a very bad Brexit, nobody's going to be listening to him forever after. His political premiership is effectively over. He's got a majority of one. His government will fall before too long and he will be done. Very, very much agree with what Robert has said. I think in the end, I hope in the end, he will blink because... He doesn't know how it will go. He cannot know, as I say, because the levers are in other hands. And it's the thing about Ted Heath in February 1974. Ted Heath said, we've got a state of emergency. We've got a three-day week. We've got industrial unrest. It's not my fault. It's the fault of the miners. It's the fault of the unions. Send me back to show who governs. The British public looked at Ted Heath and said, we're in a complete mess. You're in government. You're out. I think it's exactly the same to a far greater degree with Johnson. However much he may want to blame the Europeans, in the end, the public will blame him. And that's what he has to think of in the final analysis. And I think he will think of that, and Boris is longing to be liked, but ultimately he's boxed himself into a very, very tight space. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Robert, James and Miranda for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Salome Palizzi. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.